in long course racing, though, if you have that much gap time left and you start pinning it, I mean, you're already on the limit. Like, we're all racing professionally. We're already running as hard as we can run. You know, someone's like, oh, just dig harder. You can get them. It's like, I'm already digging. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. It's not just, it's not really that easy to just, just to like close that gap and then maintain that for another three, three or four miles. Hello, and welcome to the June 16th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Well, this past weekend saw the Ironman Boulder 70.3 triathlon take place on a gorgeous and surprisingly cool day here in Boulder, Colorado. Well, I say here, I'm in Denver, but just up the road. For the first time that I can remember, and maybe only the second time since this race has existed, I didn't get to participate as an athlete, but I did have a role as a volunteer, and I dare say it ended up being one of the most amazing experiences that I have had in my more than two decades of the sport. Now, I've always wondered, who gets to be the lead bikers for the pros on the run course? Well, it turns out that if you sign up to volunteer, you can choose to do this as your volunteer shift. So when I signed up, that's exactly what I selected. Come Saturday, when I checked in, I was given the choice of riding with any of the first, second, or third men or women pros. Since my friend Matt Sharp was the defending champion, and I kind of hoped to ride with him, I selected the men's and the volunteer coordinator suggested that I take second place man. According to her, all the excitement takes place in second, first is usually up the road. Little did we know how prescient her words were. A couple of hours later, I waited at the exit of T2, as professionals Matt Sharp, Chris Lieferman, and Lionel Sanders all exited together, down four minutes to Sam Long. For the next hour and 10 minutes or so, I got a very, very front row seat to some amazing racing, and it was truly, truly exhilarating. In the first couple of miles, Matt and Lionel dropped Chris, and I watched the two of them run side by side for seven miles or so. The contrast between Matt's long and fluid strides and Lionel's short and jerky ones was amazing, but they both matched each other in speed, and neither seemed willing to give any quarter. Then, at mile 7, I saw that Chris was coming back pretty fast. By mile 8, he had caught up and went by the pair, but Lionel had clearly been biding his time running along with Matt and just saving his energy, because as Chris went by, Lionel just easily switched to a different gear and jumped right onto his hip. For three miles, they ran together. Then, on a short hill, Chris began to get away. A gap opened up to about 10 meters, and I thought that was it. Lionel was done. But then, somehow, slowly, methodically, by sheer force of will, Lionel crept back until he was again shoulder-to-shoulder to to Chris with a mile and a half to go. They were locked on to each other, running precisely the same pace. If one surged even the slightest, the other went with him. And Lionel, ever the wily tactician, had placed himself on the left. This was crucial, because we all knew that the final two turns into the finish were left-hand turns, and being on that side gave him a shorter line than Chris. In the last half mile, they both gradually ramped up the speed, but neither one could get away until with the final left-hand turn, Lionel took advantage of his shorter line and opened up his sprint. Chris couldn't recover and had to settle for third. Matt ended up seeding fourth place to a very hard-charging rookie from Mexico, Thomas Hernandez, who had the fastest run of the day by several minutes, and Matt came home in fifth. 
It really, really was an honor and a privilege to be so close to such an epic battle, and I felt like I gained such an amazing appreciation for the tactics and the strategies that play out in a race like this that previously I, I truthfully was not aware of. I was so excited about the whole thing that I wanted to learn more and share it with you all, and so I am super excited about the guest segment of the show today when I'm going to be joined by professionals Matt Sharp and Chris Lieferman, who will share their perspectives and thoughts on what went down and help us understand the real inside story of a race like this. I am so excited to bring that to you in a short while. And for the record, I reached out to Lionel Sanders to have him join as well, but unfortunately, and he did respond, he is traveling on his way to Mont Tremblant for his next race. So he is unable to join us for this conversation. But I know that you will enjoy the conversation between myself, Matt, and Chris, and that's going to be coming up in a little while. Before that, Livesport coach and former Olympic rower Juliette Hockman joins me for the medical mailbag when we will discuss some newer medical research that suggests that men and women may have differing needs for hydration when participating in long-distance endurance events. It's based on some research that has come out in literature on men and women in the heat, in industrial settings, as well as when performing exercise, and on a really interesting study on hyponatremia that comes from the Ironman World Championships in Kona over a 30-year period. And that conversation is going to be coming up shortly. Before all of that, I want to take my customary moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift for you in the form of a pretty cool Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. It's time again for the medical mailbag, and so I am joined by my friend, my colleague, Olympic champ, well, Olympic champion, <laughs> Ironman no, 70.3 champion and former Olympian, <laughs> Juliet Hawkman. <laughs> Juliet, welcome back to the program. Thank you. What are we going to be talking about today? There's been a lot discussed recently about the differences between men and women and whether or not they demand different hydration plans during endurance events. And I'm just really curious about the science behind this, because when we look at a four and a half, five hour, six hour plus event, and particularly if we're in a hot climate, should I as an athlete, as a female athlete, be planning differently from my male peers? And as a coach, should I be advising my athletes differently between men and women? So I'm just really curious on what you've uncovered on this. It's an excellent question, and it's one that is continuing to evolve a little bit, but we do have some insights that have come out in the recent years based on some science that has been looked at between the genders. We also have a really interesting paper that just came out in the last month that looked at Ironman athletes at the Ironman World Championships in Kona. So let's talk a little bit about that, and let's first just get into a discussion about why 
athletes get into trouble when they perform these long distance events. I think everybody recognizes, and I've talked on the podcast in the past about the importance of maintaining hydration during these long events, because of course, as we are out there, as we are exerting ourselves, we are losing fluids. We are losing water through losses in sensible losses, which is lost through sweat. We are losing uh, water because we are consuming it as part of our metabolic processes. And over the course of an event, people who sweat as much as I can't remember what the sweat rates are, but people can lose up to a liter an hour just in it losses through sweat glands. And so, and then you're also losing, if you live like where I do in altitude where it's very dry, you're losing it through your breath as well. So you could lose quite a bit of fluid over a fairly short amount of time. And that fluid needs to be replaced. So very important because that fluid contributes to your blood volume. It contributes to maintaining cell volumes and, and just maintaining all of your physiological processes. So you're able to keep moving forward. Along with fluid losses, there are, of course, electrolyte losses. And over the time that endurance sport has evolved, we initially saw a lot of athletes learning quickly that they had to replace fluids. And so they would do so with consuming large amounts of water, ignoring the fact that they needed to also replace electrolytes. And this led to problems with athletes developing what's called hyponatremia. What that means is they were replacing free water and not replacing sodium losses. And so they had a free water excess in their blood, sodium levels would fall, and this would lead them to be properly hydrated, but they would end up with low levels of sodium. And this causes all kinds of other problems, which can and unfortunately was for a couple of runners in a charity event in the 1980s fatal. So I want to stop you there for one second, Jeff, because I want to make sure you're using sodium and electrolytes synonymously. Like those two words pretty much mean the same in what you're discussing here. Yeah, because the reason being for that is sodium is really the major electrolyte that we are concerned about. There's no question other electrolytes are lost as well. Magnesium is lost, calcium is lost, even potassium is lost to a certain degree. But the major electrolyte that is lost in sweat is sodium and with it is chloride and those two come together. So when we think about the major electrolyte that impacts physiology during endurance events, it's going to be sodium chloride, which is salt. And we'll talk a lot about salt throughout this conversation. The knowledge that free water excess was causing harm led people to then understand that they needed to supplement electrolytes, salt, as well as some of the other minor electrolytes in their fluid replacements. And so that led to the introduction and the widespread consumption of fluids, sport drinks like Gatorade. And athletes began to then have much better success with taking in these sport drinks and taking in electrolyte solutions, and they would be properly hydrated and they would have proper amounts of sodium. We've kind of gone the other way though, because now at this point, we're seeing a lot of athletes consuming just dramatic quantities of salt, far in excess of what is needed. And this actually has a counterintuitive effect because if you take on too much salt, number one, it causes problem for your gut, but number two, your kidneys are not going to tolerate that and they're going to start excreting it. And in order to excrete salt, you have to excrete water so you can actually end up having a problem with losing the fluid that you're trying to keep. So salt needs to be taken in, but it doesn't need to be taken in in quite the dramatic quantities that we're seeing. Okay, so the question at hand here is really, is there a sex difference? And for you, a woman who is postmenopausal, the answer is no, 
There's not. But for women who are premenopausal, women who are still having their menstrual cycles, then the answer is yes, there is. And the reason for that is because the menstrual cycle is associated with, of course, fluctuating levels of the sex hormones, particularly estrogen and progesterone. And those are associated with a fluctuating level of another hormone that is secreted by the adrenal glands called aldosterone. And aldosterone is responsible for maintaining sodium and fluid quantities within our bloodstream. It turns out that women in the luteal phase, there are two phases of the menstrual cycle, the follicular phase which is followed by ovulation and then the luteal phase. And then after that comes menstruation. During the luteal phase, aldosterone levels are quite high and women tend to retain sodium and fluid as I think most women who undergo menstruation are familiar with when they get to their (laughs) menstrual period, they tend to feel a little bit puffy. The reason for that is the aldosterone. But even during the follicular phase, women's aldosterone levels are higher than men. And for that reason, women who go into a sporting event have higher extracellular fluid volumes than do men percentage-wise. Another reason that women are better hydrated when they start is because men and women have different quantities of body fat. Women have a higher percentage of body fat in their bodies, and that body fat displaces the water. So water constitutes a larger fraction of the extracellular volume and extracellular weight in women than it does in men. And When a woman lines up on the start line next to a man, a woman is better hydrated than a man is before they do anything. And that has to do with hormonal balances. It has to do with just anatomy. So how they hydrate then has to take this into into account. And there has been some small studies that have looked at women basketball players, women cyclists, and have looked at whether or not they should hydrate based on a recipe similar to what men do. Men are often told, start hydrating every so often, taking this much per hour, or should women hydrate based on a thirst sensation? And it turns out that women who hydrate to thirst do just as well as the men who hydrate based on a recipe. And the women who hydrate based on thirst tend to run into less issues with electrolyte imbalances. Now, again, I don't want to make this a, I don't want to make this a, like a, a, an advisory because this is preliminary science, but there is a, a reasonable amount of evidence now that does suggest that women can hydrate to thirst and start hydrating when they start to become thirsty, as opposed to just hydrating right from the get-go. And I think that is particularly interesting, and it's backed up by the study that came out of the medical group that staffs the Ironman event in Kona. Huh. Now, I mean, maybe it's too early in this research to be able to quantify this, but do you have a sense, if we're comparing premenopausal women to men as a whole, which you haven't segmented, so I'll just treat them as a whole. Do you have a sense for how much more fluid men need to take in over perhaps a five to six hour event than a woman who is perhaps being more guided by thirst? 
That hasn't really been well quantified, and that is going to vary dramatically. It just, there are a number of reasons for that. So men have larger muscle mass, they generate more heat, they tend to sweat more. Their sweat rates are often 50% higher than women. They, women have more sweat glands in certain parts of their body, but men on the whole have more sweat glands per square inch. And for that reason, they tend to produce more sweat and lose more fluids more quickly. So it hasn't necessarily been quantified how much fluid people should be taking. I know there's a lot of people that say, oh, know your sweat rates and look to replace your fluid based on your sweat rates. That That's a good way to kind of get a starter, but it's really not an exact science because there are so many things that can impact your sweat rate. How hard are you working? What's the ambient temperature? What's the wet bulb temperature? All of these things can affect your sweat rate, but it's still a good place to start. The issue with women is, as I said, they're starting at a, a, a better hydrated place already. And so knowing their sweat rate can factor in over time, but the question is, is when should they start? And I'm not sure we have a great answer for that. Okay. Do you, have a, do you remains, have a sense? Yeah. Sorry, so say, do you have a sense for if premenopausal women, younger women, do are not required to hydrate at the same high rate as men as a whole? Do you have a sense, given that? Let's face it, a lot of the women's population in triathlon is postmenopausal or perimenopausal. Do you have the sense that whether older women are hydrating at the same rate as men or are they also slightly lower? Or do we just simply not know that yet? We don't know that yet. A lot of this okay. research has been done on premenopausal women because of the interest around the sex hormones. There hasn't sure. been a ton of research on postmenopausal women yet. Whether or not they're the same as men, I don't think they will be because, again, there's still these changes in anatomy that are going to be important. I suspect that postmenopausal women will still need to take less fluids, but whether or not it's significantly less than men of the same age, I'm guessing it's probably not. And again, I, I, a lot of this has to come down to experimentation. I think every individual athlete needs to practice their hydration strategies and get a sense for what they need in their own workouts and in their own racing, but they can use this as a guide premenopausal women anyways, those who are still having their menstrual cycles should consider the fact that they can delay their hydration to the point that they start exp experiencing thirst and not necessarily take large quantities of fluid just because they feel like they have to be ahead of the game because they're starting ahead of the game. Now, I want to, I've referenced a couple of times this, this study from the Ironman event, and it's really, really interesting because what they found was they looked over 30 years of Ironmans at the medical tent of all of the athletes who were presenting. Now, keep in mind, this is going to be a bit of a, not a perfect study. They basically were looking at the athletes who presented to the medical tent. And then of that subsection, or sorry, of, of that group of athletes, which obviously is only a fraction of the athletes who participate, they then had blood samples from about a third. So we're really only getting a snapshot of a very small segment of the athletes who participated at the Ironman. Still, it's, it's a pretty robust sample. And the other thing we need to consider is that men made up I believe three quarters of the athletes who participated okay. in Kona up until recently. So mm -hmm. you're getting a, a skewed sample size. Still, the results were pretty impressive. What they found was hyponatremia is common, but not exceedingly so. It occurs in about one out of five athletes who presented to the medical tent who had blood draws. It was more common in women 
than it was in men. But when it was found in women, those women were overhydrated. And when it was found in men, the men were dehydrated. So what that means is that the women who were showing up who were hyponatremic, who had low sodium levels, the reason they were hyponatremic is because they were taking excess quantities of free water. The men who were showing up and who were hyponatremic, they were showing up with hyponatremia because they were just not hydrating adequately. They were losing amounts of water and salt together and replacing it with water and salt together, but just not doing so enough. So men and women develop hyponatremia for very different reasons. Men develop it because they become dehydrated of both water and salt. And women become hyponatremic because they overhydrate with free water. Now, that doesn't mean they need to start gobbling down salt. It just means they need to be more conscious of taking a balanced solution that has more salt in it. So it's not these like, I see people running around with baggies of, of like granular salt and like taking like handfuls of the salt. That, that is simply not necessary. But you do need to be taking around four to 500 milligrams per hour is sort of the recommended amount over the course of a 70.3 or an Ironman event, especially if it's hot. That's adequate. People who are taking grams of this stuff generally are overdoing it. So, so that's really interesting. It's it basically what you're saying is that based on the study, women were being almost overly conscious of making sure they are hydrating and they were flushing through all of that much needed sodium with too much water. Whereas the guys <laughs> were sort of saying, no, no, I'm fine. And not taking enough fluids in, in general. And it was a balance of course of fluids and sodium or, or electrolytes. They were just plain dehydrated. Yeah, I'm not sure if they were like thinking they were fine. I thinking I think what happened was is they just couldn't keep up with their losses. Okay. Because again, the guys tend to sweat more and they just sometimes it's just really hard to keep up with those losses, especially as when you're you're participating in an event in a warm environment, you start to become nauseous and and it becomes even harder to get the fluids in. Women were not having that problem. Women women were able to get the fluids in, but they were taking excesses of water related to salt. In sure. fact, when you okay. look at the people who were showing up dehydrated, dehydrated like they lost more water than salt. Again, we saw that men outnumbered women by a two to one margin. So men were showing up dehydrated where they lost more. They were taking inadequate amounts of salt, but they were just not able to get the water in because they were just sweating too much. Women were still taking in enough water, but they weren't, they were, they were taking water in excess of salt. They were just not able to take enough of it. And they, they ended up dehydrated that way as well. So, so across the spectrum, women are overhydrating with free water men are simply not able to keep up when these problems develop and again this is a small number right the vast majority of people don't end up in the medical tent because they're doing just fine now right. the other thing that this study reported was that a large number of people showed up with hyponatremia that was completely asymptomatic so it was mild hyponatremia it 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 was classified as hyponatremia based on the concentration of sodium in the blood, but it wasn't to the point that it was causing any significant symptoms like nausea, vomiting, confusion, or any of those things. And so it wasn't treated and nothing needed to be done. And, and it makes me wonder how many people are crossing the finish line with that. 
that right. that's a question that would be interesting to answer. But obviously, we're probably not going to know that unless we start doing blood draws on everybody who finishes. Oh, here's your medal. And by the way, jab. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so let's jump to sort of recommendations or in, in, implications, right? So if you have two athletes of sort of similar ability, pacing, et cetera, and you're sending them off to a race, which is perhaps, of course, now we're separating men and women in Kona, but a Kona type race where they're, they're going to be losing significant amounts of fluid. Do you have a sense of what you'd be recommending for that 40 year old woman, let's say premenopausal versus your 40 year old guy? Yeah, I do. Actually, I, I have started to tell women to be a little more cautious with fluids. I tell everybody I want their solutions to contain 400 to 500 milligrams of sodium per bottle. And I want them, the men I want to be taking at least a bottle per hour. And that's most bottles are somewhere around five to 600 cc's or so. So I want that, that that's got to be the minimum. And I usually ask them to supplement with something that they grab at an aid station. It can be free water. That's fine because they've taken in that four to 500 milligrams. A little bit of excess water is not going to change that. The, the women I tell now, I, I'd say, you know what? I don't necessarily want you to start drinking a bottle of hour right away, a bottle an hour right away. Instead, I want you to wait until you start being thirsty. And when you start getting thirsty, then I want you to start going for that bottle every hour or so. And all I'm doing now is just telling the women to take a bit of a delayed start on their hydration. So for the men, it's like the second you get on the bike, you start with your hydration. And for the women, I'm telling them, you know what? Give it a little time. And often that time ends up being 20 minutes, 30 minutes maybe. Now, Kona's are a little bit of a odd duck because they're swimming in salt water. And so often the salt in the ocean makes them thirsty anyways. And so they are going to start drinking pretty early. But if they're in a freshwater place like Florida, a race in Florida, for example, and they swam in Haines, they did the Haines City race, which has a freshwater swim, they get out onto the bike. They might not be thirsty right away. It might take them 20, 30 minutes before they start getting thirsty. And I think that that's okay based on what I have read. Should that be an across the board recommendation? I've had discussions with other physicians who who have disagreed with me that they're not convinced by this literature, but I think there's enough of a body of evidence right now where I think the dangers of overhydrating for women are are real and that it 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 is compelling and that I think telling women to hydrate based on thirst is not going to be dangerous and not going to be a bad thing. The men need to hydrate immediately and I think for postmenopausal women I tell them to start hydrating immediately as well. Hmm. Interesting. You're making me feel a lot better as an athlete myself, because I've always been a little bit guilty of underhydrating, particularly on the bike. And despite what I tell my athletes, I always think to myself, hmm, I'm not necessarily having a bottle an hour. So, <laughs> so you definitely, and, and I've always done fine. So it's interesting to hear this, the results of the study that perhaps maybe that was sort of from a gut check perspective, not such a bad thing to do in the past. So that makes sense. So what else do we need to know? Is that, are there any, are there other pieces of the study that came out as particularly sort of revelatory? I think that's the major pieces. I think the, we can't, we can't 
sort of downplay the influence of environmental conditions. We just had the race here in Boulder this past weekend. It was a spectacular day. It was, it was cool for the first, of course, the first time I don't do the race in like over a decade. It's like perfect weather <laughs> and you don't need to necessarily jump on your hydration and salt if you're not going to be sweating quite as much. So you kind of have to factor that in a little bit what's going on around you. And if you're if you're starting out on a really hot day, especially if it's humid, and you know that you're going to be sweating more, then yeah, you probably want to jump on things earlier. But if it's a cooler day, and if it's got a less sun and, and conditions are such that you might not be sweating as much, you should adapt. I don't think I think it's it's important to, for all coaches to consider that they have to make sure that they design their hydration and nutrition plan for their athletes not to be fixed in stone, but rather to be something that is changed based on what the individual day looks like that the event is being held. For sure. And, and sort of as a corollary to that, of course, to the extent that we can encourage athletes to practice their hydration and nutrition strategies well in advance of race day through larger, longer, more intense workouts, bricks, et cetera, in the eight weeks before in particular, they'll just be better poised on race day to be able to react to whatever the conditions are. Yeah, 100%. Well, Juliet, thank you again for an excellent question. I think it's been a fascinating conversation. I know that the listeners have really responded well to this format, and I really enjoy it myself. So I'm looking forward to another question that we'll have on the next episode. Juliet Hockman is my friend, my colleague, and always my guest for the Medical Mailbag. If you have a question you want to hear Juliet ask me, I hope that you will consider sending it to me in an email. You can do so at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or you can join the private Facebook group for the podcast on that platform. Search for the TriDoc podcast, answer a couple of very easy questions. I'll grant you admittance. You can join the conversation and submit your questions there. Juliet, thanks so much for joining me today. We'll see you again next next time. Thanks, Jeff. All right. I'm really excited for the guest segment of the podcast today because I've got two just amazing individuals here who are going to share some insights from what we all saw last Saturday at the Boulder 70.3 Half Ironman Triathlon. Uh, Joining me right now is uh, Chris Lieferman. He has had a very long and successful career in the Ironman and 70.3 circuits. He's got multiple wins at both distances going back to 2016. His uh, probably career highlight, I would imagine, was fourth at the Ironman World Championship in St. George in May of 2022, and he finished third in Boulder on Saturday. Also joining me is Canadian Matt Sharp. He has a distinguished career as an ITU athlete. He was a 2020 Olympian for Canada and had his professional debut on the 70.3 circuit in Boulder in 2022, where he came away with the win. He also has wins at St. Anthony's and was on the podium at Santa Cruz last year with third but at Boulder this past weekend. He rounded out the top five, and I am super excited to have both of them here to share with me their insights on what we all saw in a thrilling battle for uh, second and third place. Matt, Chris, thank you both for joining me on the TriDoc Podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, Thank you. All right, I'm going to start. I was uh, on the bike waiting for the exit from T2, and you came trying out, uh, Ed, with uh, Chris hot on your heels and Lionel right behind. What are you thinking as you get onto the run? You know that Sam's up the road. So at this point, I'm guessing you're probably thinking that that's not an attainable kind of gap to make up so what what's your kind of thoughts as you start the run 
Yeah, for me, I think um, I wasn't necessarily thinking of Sam up the road, but obviously in racing, anything can happen. So, you know, up or whatever. Um, but you're for me, I was just like, OK, I want to take this out all at effort um, and just it, it did feel sustainable at the time. Uh, I was pushing it for sure. Looking back, were you pushing it because of the company you were in or were you pushing it just because that's just how you felt and, and you thought it was something you could do? Yeah, it just it just felt like a, a somewhat sustainable um anyways. Um but at the same time too, like I don't I don't really know what's going on behind me in the race. Um knowing that some good runners uh coming up from behind potentially. No, there's low information in that sense. So it, to, for me it's just like I might as well, you know, push it in what I thought was a uh, thought being the keyword. Um and uh and- Okay. And Chris, you were the third member along with Matt and Lionel. And I should mention, I reached out to Lionel and he actually did respond. He said that uh, he was unable to join us today because he's traveling, but I appreciate him getting back to us. And uh, Chris, you were the third member of that group. And I'd say probably about a mile and a half uh, into that run, you kind of dropped away. And I I remember thinking at that time, oh, that's too bad. Uh, It looks like he's probably (laughs) not going to be there. Uh, What were you thinking? I was thinking I... I didn't know what I had in me and I just wanted to kind of go into it a little bit easier. And it was a hot pace going up from the beginning. And at, at that moment, it just wasn't, it wasn't smart or sustainable. Um, and I just wanted to respect the course. Uh, I, training had been quite lumpy for me going into it. So I just wanted to build into it. Um, I knew where Sharpie and Lionel had been racing throughout the year. So I, um, and I knew that, like, like Matt said earlier, is that a lot can happen in racing. And if those two were racing, going head-to-head, there's a really good chance that one of them are going to blow up <clears throat> just because they are racing. When you, do, when you just have that dynamic side-by-side, it's, you know, but that's, that's what Matt went for. He, he, I think he did the smart thing um, because it's a race. You know, it's, you, you have to go for it. But I just kind of sat back and wanted to see what my legs were going to do in that first lap. And you mentioned to me yesterday when we talked, you said something about the idea that you really work hard and try to respect the altitude. And you know that negative splitting a course like Boulder is difficult. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I just have a hard time. Once that heart rate goes high at altitude, it's nearly impossible to get it back down unless you unless you stop running or slow down significantly. Uh, so, you know, maybe at sea level, you can back off the pace, still keep a good clip and, and regroup a little bit, but at altitude, it doesn't come across that easy. So you, you have to do everything you can to not get that initial spike. Now, Matt, I, I told you the other day, it was really a pleasure to, to watch you run. You have just an amazing form. It's like you're, you're a tall guy. You have just this flowing style. And it, it's an amazing contrast, of course, to Lionel, who has that famous kind of jerky sort of hitch in his run. And yet he's so fast. One of the things I really got from being so close to you both was just how wily Lionel is. I noticed that very quickly he took the left side of the course and all of the aid stations were on the left. And he really gave no quarter as you came through aid stations. Uh, you always had to either go ahead or kind of drop back behind. Uh, was Do you think that was on purpose? Did, did you feel like that impacted you at all? Um, like when Lionel and I were running together, kind of? Yeah, when you were side by side for like a good six miles. Yeah, I mean, in my feeling when I was running with him, it was just, we were kind of going back and forth a bit, but 
you know, I've never raced Lionel before in that context. So I, I don't know what it's like, you know, being around him, what the, the vibe is. But to me, it seemed like he was hurting. Looking back on that, that is certainly not the case. I think that's just how he always is. <laughs> so I learned, yeah, I learned a lot yeah, for yeah, sure. Totally. Learned a lot for sure. Um, yeah, and, and he's a fierce competitor. And we were, you know, truly, I felt like racing, which like when I was out there, like I was like, you know, F yeah, this is sick. Like we're, we're battling here, um, which I love. Like, I don't want him to, you know, I don't expect myself to kind of, you know, back off or whatever. And I don't expect someone like him, especially to, uh, you know, to give quarter. I don't think it really affected my performance, you know, having to go back or go forward or whatever. Those are pretty marginal things because I think overall, once, you know, uh, once Chris came by, he was, I would say just, yeah, in that kind of more sustainable place where I definitely uh, overplayed my hand, I think, at that point. I'm going to get to Chris coming back in a second. I, I want to stick to just this idea of running side by side with Lionel. And, yeah. and I mean, is part of you is part of you just like in your head going, oh, my God, I'm running like neck and neck with Lionel Sanders. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, I'm a fan of the sport. I'm a fan of folks like Lionel and, and Chris, you know, they're, they're both incredible athletes. So, you know, obviously I'm trying to compete and stuff, but it's just, you know, this is the stuff you train for. My actual fear going into this race was that I wouldn't even be in the race because these guys would absolutely roast me on the bike. So even just going off, you know, coming into T2 with them, I was so fired up because I was like, yes, let's go. Like, not in the sense that I thought I would run away from them. It was like, let's race. Like, here we go. So it was just, yeah, I was truly enjoying myself um, up until, uh, yeah, later on in the run. All right. Well, around mile uh, seven, I looked back and uh, was really surprised to see Chris coming real hard. And Chris, uh, as you see that gap start to, you know, the elastic band starts to come back. What are you thinking as you're coming up on them? Well, I kept getting splits. I think it started at the, at the dam, um, the first the first stretch of the dams and either Sharpie or Lionel asked what's the gap back and they asked someone who was on the dam and then that same person goes they're asking for the gap back they're asking for the gap back nice. like get them man get them and I was like, oh <laughs> sweet all right so but there's so much race left and it's not like okay pin it you know it's like no you're you're doing what you need to do just stay calm because I think that they're hurting more than you're hurting and that was that was a focus. And then we got to that aid station on that little outback at Coot, and just there I gained I gained a second, um, just in you know two hundred meters. I'm like, okay, it's I'm reeling them back in. It's just stay calm, stay patient. Um, yeah, you say Jeff that I was that I was come charging in. It did not feel like a charge on my end. <laughs> it just seemed. I think yeah, just I think I hopefully I think I just held consistent and um, was able to catch them. Just in general. Is there a time when you start to think it's too late or is there a time when you start to think, oh, I've got to push this to make this gap back if I want to have a chance? But I mean, clearly there was a lot of time left in this race, but I'm just curious from both of you, do you ever kind of like get that gap or that split and think to yourself, you know, I got to put it all on the line right now? Um, I, there's definitely been races for sure. And I, in long course racing, though, if you have that much gap time left and you start pinning it, I mean, you're already on the limit. Like we're all racing professionally. We're already running as hard as we can run. You know, someone's like, Oh, just dig harder. You can get them. It's like, I'm already digging. What are you talking about? Like, yeah, it's yeah. not just, it's not really that easy to just, just to like 
close that gap and then maintain that um, for another three, three or four miles. So it's, um, but maybe towards the end of the race, you definitely have to make some moves. So in retrospect, Matt, I haven't looked at the splits, but was your pace slowing or was Chris just coming harder? I don't know. I actually haven't looked at the splits. I didn't feel like we slowed down, to be honest, but I could be wrong. It, but that might just be because my was really starting to hurt. And so the same effort or even slightly slower felt that much worse than the first lap. To be honest, yeah, I, I don't know the splits or anything. Yeah, like I can't comment on that. And when Chris rejoins you, what are you thinking at that moment? Are you thinking, okay, now we're three, or I, I'm just curious what the the thought process is because you've been two for all this time, and now Chris has come back, and 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 what is the thought for you at that point? Yeah, for me, so I think when Chris caught back, I was still running. I think maybe side by side with Lionel, but yeah, like my legs were were really fatiguing. It wasn't like an aerobic like like heavy breathing kind of thing. Like I feel like Lionel was breathing heavier because maybe the altitude was hitting him a little harder or something. But for me, it was just my, the pure like, like leg and, and muscle fatigue. Um, because I think ultimately I probably burned, you know, one or two matches on the bike that I needed f- to hang in on that run potentially, which I don't really regret doing because I kind of need to be there anyways. But yeah, that's my sense was when Chris came by, like my legs were just pretty cooked and, it, it he just i don't know if he surged or if it was just like the continuation of the pace but it was just like i tried to go and then i knew i was like okay we gotta like get to the finish line kind of situation that's really interesting that's, that's how all of us age groupers sort of manage things at that point someone goes by and we're like okay just finish now just finish uh, yeah. so it was really interesting for me watching that because chris goes by and it almost seemed as if lionel had been kind of just playing possum he'd just been kind of hanging with you and when chris went by at a faster pace he's like oh okay next gear and he just sort of went with chris and and the two of them and and when they leave you behind matt i mean obviously not soul crushing i mean there's only four or four and a half miles left in the race but i mean it's got to be a little disheartening you've just gone from second to fourth uh, yeah it? how do you find the motivation to keep the pace yeah, I mean, for me, it was like, okay, you just need to, like, I just refocus and try and hold my form and, and obviously push as hard as I can. But yeah, it's 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 super frustrating when you, you know, want to hang with the group and, and keep yourself in it. And I really tried to, even knowing if I'd get dropped eventually, like the biggest thing you can do is just try and hang with, with guys like that. Because mentally, it's often easier just to be pushing, but also hanging with folks and and having, you know, an external focus, because once they're gone, it becomes a little, little, little too much internal focus. Uh, that can be hard mentally, for sure. And did you have any idea that this guy was coming from behind Thomas Hernandez? Holy smokes. Yeah. So part of the reason why what like I kind of kept pushing that beginning of the run or whatever, because I was like, this guy's gonna I don't know where this guy is. But if he's anywhere close, like he's gonna, you know, pull up, pull the gap back really quick. So I was like, I need to push because in the end if you know if these guys drop me or whatever at least i'll probably be able to take down this guy but yeah it, for me at that point i was like you know shit i need to try and press as much as i can to ensure that like this guy isn't gonna catch it and i was asking folks who you know i was who was along the course you know i was like oh where's the guy behind where's the next guy and they're like oh he's only like he's a minute 20 back or something and i didn't really have that much time left in the race so i was like okay you know, keep pushing, keep pushing. I never really stopped pushing. 
but that guy, once he can taste the blood and see me, like you just get lifted to another level because you know Buddy in front is is suffering, which I was. Ten seconds. That's yeah. tough, right? Well, I've I've done that. <laughs> yeah. Like I feel like in my races lately, I've been the guy rolling rolling back. So a little bit of karma maybe for me. I don't know. But uh yeah, it's uh it, it, it like I know you talked about, you know, enjoying my form or whatever, but you weren't there in those last miles, Jeff. You left me and the form was not there anymore. Let me tell you, it was we were running ugly. <laughs> Well, I'll revel in the memory of what I saw. Yeah, yeah for sure. Just remember the good times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Chris, you're you're now alone with Lionel. You've got about uh, three and a half miles to go. And uh, again, I was struck by how tactical that last three and a half miles were. One of the first things that happened was uh, I noticed there was a definite change in the interaction. Uh, previously, Matt and Lionel had run in complete silence, but now you guys were running, and I could tell that you would occasionally kind of turn to him and say something. And and there was one moment when you were starting down one of the larger hills where you you actually made a joke, and and he started to laugh. And I think you said something about your knees. Tell me about what that's like, and and how often that kind of thing <coughs> happens in those kinds of moments. Um, I don't know if it happens much with other people, but. I, I guess I kind of talk a little bit. It might piss off the other athletes, but it's a little micro break for myself. Um, but going down that hill into the West entrance is just, uh, it was pretty steep and my knees are achy and I'm, I'm like my old knees, my old knees as I'm running down the hill and Lionel got a laugh because probably his old knees were hurting too. Um, but yeah, so it's then at the bottom of that hill, I ended up getting a gap on him a bit and later after the race he told me he's like dude if you would have taken off or like put or just tighten the screw a little bit you'd have had me because he had such a side stitch at that point and and i didn't obviously didn't know that but again it's not like i was already running pretty hard so it's not like i could just like you had another gear so easily two and a half miles yeah yeah. um but he goes yeah you if i would have probably um ran conservatively had you gained more ground on me at that point that's interesting i want to get to that in a second though but there was one other piece that happened just before you got that gap on him and uh it had been a really still day and then all of a sudden there was this headwind just very suddenly it just came up and it wasn't for very long it was only for about a minute or two Mm -hmm. but as soon as that wind kicked up he dropped immediately right behind you and started to draft off of you. And again, I found myself just struck by how wily he is as a competitor. And just curious, like, I'm sure you noticed it. I'm, I'm sure you felt like, damn it, he got the better of me on this one. Is that something that uh, you felt like, oh, score one for him? And, you know, I wish I could have done that before. Yeah, no, I noticed that immediately. And that wind as it was actually kind of nice. It was a cooling little breeze, but as soon as it hit, he went behind me and I was like, ah, shit, you know? Um, but I was a half a step ahead of him at that point. He was just right on my shoulder. So for me to have gone to get the draft, uh, would have been for me to have to like sidestep, slow down, sidestep back behind him. And whereas he was just able to slip in the back. So he was in better position and not much that I could have done, but I knew immediately that what he was doing, because you could just hear the sound come right behind your head rather than off to your left shoulder. So yeah, he's, he's no dummy. It's, he, he knew what he was doing. I would have done the same thing. It just, he was in better position. I don't know how much of a benefit that had for him, but you know, any, any little extra helps. 
Is there a, like like Matt's a real tall guy, but he's also <clears> very <throat> slight. Are there specific athletes that it's kind of like you sort of think to yourself, oh, I I can draft off of this person, but maybe not off of another type of person? Like clearly Hernandez, for example, a really small uh, a professional, uh, it wouldn't provide much draft. But I mean, are there certain types that like is Matt a kind of athlete you could draft off of because he's so slight or? I'm just curious, like, because uh, running drafting is not something I think a lot of us think about. Yeah, maybe if you ran sideways. So <laughs> if I ran sideways, I could slip behind um, Sharpie there. Um, I mean, I think anyone's going to be cutting some air. So I think that I think it's 18 meters per second uh, is the difference that you can get a draft in running. What so that's the wind differential plus your speed. Um, and so there is a benefit, especially when you're running at the clip that we are. So yeah. Um, I think anyone's going to cut some air for you. What about for you, Matt? You're so tall. Uh, I mean, a lot of the athletes are going to be shorter than you. Do you think you get a draft off of athletes who are shorter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's psychologically too, like I alluded to earlier. Um, if you're running behind somebody and, and you know they're setting the pace, you're not really thinking. You're just it's less of a cognitive load when you're not leading. You're kind of just you know got them as your external focus. Um, and yeah, I definitely think even if they're shorter there's still a benefit for sure. Um, it might be a bit less, but you know, as a tall person, I'll take a five foot guy in front of me. Yeah, I'll take that. I'm not going to complain. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So back to you, Chris, you're, you're, you got this gap. You were going up a little bit of a hill. I understand somebody who shall remain nameless called out that you had a 10 meter gap. And, uh, then he just came back. Uh, I, I I know you said that. Uh, all right, the nameless person was me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he started coming back, and and I know you didn't know. I mean, he just he just he just got up to you. But is that psychologically tough when when you know you have a bit of a gap, but then the the, the person comes back to you like that? Do you sort of feel like, oh damn, I guess uh, you know here we go? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you think you have it. Um, I think we're maybe a mile and a half yet from the finish and I had 10 meters on him and I'm like, all right, the, the rubber band snapped. So, um, I just wanted to keep holding on to the pace. Like what I am doing currently is working. So don't change anything. And, um, and he eventually is a slight downhill, I believe. And, um, he was able to get back on and yeah, no, it is, especially when you think you have it in the bag at that point. And then he reels you right back in. So it's, it's discouraging, but it's such a duration. And then again, demonstrating his kind of wiliness, I keep referring to that, uh, he positioned himself on your left. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the course, the race ends with two left turns into the finish. And being on the left gave Lionel an inside track and definitely an extra step on both of those turns uh, that really kind of led to him having an ability to get ahead of Chris towards the end there. I know you were conscious of that, Chris. Uh, did, was there anything you did to try and dislodge him and get your better positioning for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So the coming off of the, the dirt road, it's a left-hand turn into the gate, and then it's a sharp right-hand turn, then about 30, 40 meters, it's a sharp left-hand, and then another 30 meters, 40 meters, is a sharp left-hand into the chute. And so we were side-by-side side as we got into the gate, and I was on the right, so I was going to take that right turn hard and then um, kind of get that step up on him and then get in front of him so that I'm leading into that left-hand turn. 
And right at that right-hand turn, he surges along with me, and we go so shoulder to shoulder into both left-hand turns. And those those two left-handers were a lot tighter than any of the other turns. And he just had a half, you know, a half step on the first turn, then a half step on the second turn, and that was it going into the shoot. So um, I knew I knew what needed to be done. He knew what needed to be done. He was just better positioned at that time. It was, as I said, I'll keep saying it. I feel like I'm going all fanboy here, but it was really exciting to be a part of, to watch it that closely. I'm just curious as competitors, is it something you look back on and think, wow, that was really special to be, have been a part of, or is it just another day at the office? Um, I, I don't want to sound take. It's just, you're gonna like take the office. wind out of my sails aren't you <laughs> yeah yeah it just it didn't feel like that i was i mean i wish i was in your position um in your shoes it seemed like everyone else on the sidelines had a good show um it, you know there's a lot of cheers boulder definitely showed up for the race so that was pretty rad um but no we're suffering out there it's we're not exactly thinking like, oh, this is really cool. You know, this is. Um, you're you're no, not in the moment like we are. What about you, Matt? <laughs> no. Give me, give me something here, Matt. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was just like, I mean, I was pretty stoked because I just love to race and I love to, to be like going head to head and yeah, and I did feel like I was ready to you know try and take it to the line or whatever. But uh, yeah, like for me, I, I, I was pretty stoked. Generally, like just going head to head. But then, yeah, at the end, you know, the last like miles, I was like, oh, my God, get me to the finish, like not fired up anymore. Um, (laughs) But in terms of like, like at the end of the day, you know, I will remember this race as like, yeah, a really great race. Like often, I don't know, sometimes you're not always racing necessarily. Um, And for me, my actually my goal in coming into this race was to be able to race and I was able to do that. So it felt like a pretty significant achievement for me even though I didn't come out with like a podium or whatever, it just, for me, there's just a a lot of good check marks for me that, uh, yeah, I'll look back and be like, yeah, that was a good, a good showing. And, and, you know, I race and and I've had a lot of sprint finishes and, you know, got to the line where I've come out on top and, you know, some I haven't. So this is just one I didn't, but that's it. That's racing. Yeah. I I kind of sort of, I I sort of look at it and think to myself, you know, you're going to finish your career. You're going to look back and you're going to have obviously the wins that you'll cherish. There's going to be other races where maybe you didn't win, but you gutted it out and something good came of it. But I'd like to think that at some point you'll kind of look back and think, wow, that was a really good race. Yeah, Like that was a really good day and some good things happened out there. I'll add, I'll add to um, like literally, you know, when I showed up that morning, my gears weren't working. So I also had the mindset of like, <laughs> holy shit, I'm racing. Like I'm actually get to race. So maybe if that didn't happen, I'd maybe be a bit more bummed or whatever. But uh, the whole perspective, and this has happened to me in racing before where like I'm on the start line and I'm like, holy shit, I get to race. Not like, oh, what's going to happen? So my mindset was a little different than even it normally would be. So just being out there, yeah, having a chance to race, it was my whole perspective was shifted. So, you know, I come fifth while I got to have the opportunity to come fifth. All right. So just quickly, just finishing up here, Chris, what's next for you? Ironman Coeur d'Alene on June 25th. Oh, that's going to be a good one. Good field going to be out there for that. So we'll wish you luck for that. And Matt, how about you? Not sure yet. There's a couple of 70.3s in July. I think one in Oregon and one in Maine. Um, so maybe hit both of those. I've got to figure it out. I haven't, I'm, you know, I'll go where the wind takes me. Portland to Portland. There There you you go. go. Something like that. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, both uh, putting on a great show uh, for for me anyways, and for the fans who are watching and also uh, for being here to talk about it today. This was a real pleasure for me. Uh, Matt Sharp, Chris Leiferman, uh, two uh, outstanding professionals in the primes of their career, joining me today to talk about 70.3 Boulder this past weekend. Thanks again, both of you uh, for being here today. Thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.